Hi, I'm Jay John. Welcome to Facing the Canon. My guest on the program is John Lennox, Professor of Mathematics at Oxford University and an apologist. Professor John Lennox, a warm welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you very much. It's sheer delight to be with you. Thank you, John. We, we've known each other for a, a number of years and actually ministered together in various places, which has been great. Now, John, you were born in Northern Ireland. I was, yes. And um, grew up during troubled times. Yes, indeed, which, of course, is inevitably part of my biography and actually a very important part of my biography because I didn't realise at the time but my parents, who are very keen believers, were very unusual because, as many people realise, Northern Ireland hasn't got the best of a reputation as far as Christianity is concerned. But the sectarianism was really getting out of hand as I got into my teenage years. But Dad, who ran a store in the city of Armagh, it's a city but it's small, the ecclesiastical capital of the whole country, in fact. He was a keen believer, but he was not sectarian. And that showed itself in a remarkable way. He employed, I suppose, at most about 40 people, and he tried to balance it between Catholics and Protestants. And that cost him. The place was bombed several times. My brother nearly lost his life. And I said to him once, Dad, why do you, why do you risk this? He said, look, Scripture tells us that all men and women, irrespective of what they believe, are made in the image of God, and I'm going to treat them like that. And that left a deep impression on me. And it lives with me today, so that when I confront some of the more atheistic members of the world community, I remember that all the time. That's this, amazing. Yeah, the second thing, though, is this. Although they were very keen believers, they loved me enough to give me space to think for myself and encouraged me to think about all kinds of things, not only Christianity. So as I grew up, my impression of Christianity was mind-expanding, not bigoted and mind-contracting. And uh, my father particularly encouraged me to read widely different worldviews as well. Uh, he handed me, <laughs> I'll never forget it, the Communist Manifesto when I was about 13. I said, what's this? I said, have you read it, Dad? He said, no, but you need to read it because you need to know what other people think. So that was my background. And of course, it left deep marks when I got to Cambridge. I didn't throw my Christian commitment overboard as many of my contemporaries did because it had never been their conviction in the first place. It had been imposed on them. Absolutely. And then when you were at Cambridge, there's an interesting incident that took place when some of your lecturers took you aside into a private room to persuade you <laughs> to give up your faith. We had dinners and some of them were very nice at college and I found myself seated next to this Nobel Prize winner. And being the kind of person that's interested in learning from other people, I started to discuss with him what it meant to him, his research and his success. And then I dropped in the following question. I said, did any of your researchers ever 
lead you to think that there might be an intelligence behind the universe. Well, he bristled. And it obviously was not something I could pursue. So I dropped it in good Cambridge gentility and thought that was the end of it. He turned to his neighbour. But at the end of the meal, he said, Lennox, come to my room. And I could tell by its tone, it wasn't an invitation, it was a command. I went to his room and he invited several other senior people from the university. There were no undergraduates, no students, a couple of professors, I don't remember, perhaps four of us in all. And he sat me down, and as far as I can remember, it's a long time ago now, he said, Lennox, do you want a career in science? And I said, yes, sir. Well, he said, then you'll need to give up this naive faith in God. It will cripple you intellectually. You will suffer by comparison with your peers. You will never make it. Talk about pressure. I mean, I'd never met a Nobel Prize winner before. And here he was, browbeating me, force majeure, trying to get me to renege on my faith in Christ. How did you respond? Well, I responded by uttering a silent prayer. And then I said to him, sir, tell me, what have you got to offer me that's better than what I already have? Oh, he said the philosophy of Emile Bergson. <laughs> and I had read about the philosophy of Emile Bergson through C.S. Lewis. And I knew a bit about it. Actually, Bergson was a very poor choice because later in life he confessed he might even have become a Christian of some kind. But I said, if that's all you've got to offer me, I'm going to take the risk. And I got up and walked out. Now, it was a terrifying incident, but it put steel into my heart. Yes. And I remember resolving that if ever I was in his position, or near to it, then I would not attempt to browbeat people into Christianity. Yes. And I reflected on it many times since. If he had been a Christian, and I'd been an atheist, and he'd done the same kind of thing. To force me into Christianity, he'd probably lost his job Absolutely. the next day, you see. It was a, a terrible insight, in a way, into the dark side of academia. Yes. And I resolved then that if ever I have any kind of influence as an academic, I'm going to have open discussion, open debate, and let people make up their own minds. So it was vitally important and looking back on it, and I've written about it in my little book, Can Science Explain Everything? It, it resonates with many people. And I'm just glad I met that at the age of 19 and didn't have to wait <laughs> till I was 90, so to speak. John, you had the opportunity of attending lectures by C.S. Lewis. What was that like? I'd read a lot of Lewis. He'd helped me. You see, I have no idea what it's like to be an adult and an unbeliever. Just, I don't know what it feels like from the inside. And that uh, can be a disadvantage when you're, when you're dealing, as I have done in my life and still do, with many people who are quite opposed to Christianity. And Lewis, I discovered at an early stage, had become a Christian in his middle age. So he became a mentor to me, to give me insight into what yes. it's like 
the inside of, of atheism and the way he felt his way towards God or the way God crept up on him, I'd be better. So that I knew he was still at Cambridge. I didn't know he'd been very ill. And in the, I went up in 62 and in the Michaelmas term in 1962, he'd agreed to give a set of lectures, which turned out to be his final set of lectures on John Donne's poetry. And the English faculty lecture rooms were just across the road, Mill Lane, the famous Mill Lane, where the pub was where Crick and Watson announced that they'd found the secret of life, perhaps a little prematurely, but never mind. And I sneaked out of the maths lectures from time to time to listen to Lewis, you see. And I'm so glad I did because it's such a clear memory, freezing cold winter. And the place was packed. He was a legend, of course, by that stage. And the floor covered with undergraduates, no health and safety rules, sitting in the windows. And he would burst in at exactly, I think, five past the hour, you see. Big burly man with a big heavy coat and a scarf and a hat. And he'd start lecturing the moment he hit the doors. <laughs> the moment he walked yes, in? Yes, yes. He started lecturing. So he slowly unwound his very long scarf and took off his hat and removed his coat as he was lecturing and wending his way through the crowd of undergraduates because the floor was covered with them. By the time he got to the podium, he'd already delivered four minutes of a brilliant lecture. And so it went on, and he didn't conceal his Christian conviction, but always with a little quip and a, a, almost a wink, he, he communicated that this was real to him. But at the end of the 50 minutes, he reversed the procedure. He kept lecturing as he put on his hat, wound up his scarf, put on his coat, and the final words were uttered as he burst out through the door. There was no time for Q&A. So that's my memory of, of Lewis. Him. Amazing. There's a story that I read, uh, John, about you being invited to Siberia uh, to teach in a university there. And while you were there, they discovered that you believed in God and asked you to give uh, a lecture. And um, an interesting response from lecturers and from students. Oh, yes, that was uh, that was an amazing phase of life. Because I was pretty impecunious, I wasn't really paid the proper rate at the University of Wales. And I asked my colleagues, I could see they were earning a little bit on the side. How do you do this? Translate Russian. So I said, how do you do that? And one of my colleagues with whom I wrote many papers, a wonderful uh, Christian man, said, look, just get yourself a Russian English mathematical dictionary and apply to the American Math Society and offer your services. <laughs> so I did. Yes. So over the years, I've been translating mathematical Russian. Now that doesn't enable you to ask for a cup of tea even. But after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and I was in Berlin and helped to knock it down a little bit, Russia opened up for me. Yeah. And that's a story in itself, and that's the one you mentioned. I, I went to Siberia, and they were utterly intrigued. And even in math seminars, which would never happen in Europe or in the UK, they would say at the end, well, thanks for the lecture. And I could lecture in Russian, and that made all the difference, open door everywhere. 
they'd say, can we ask you other questions? And uh, sure. Well, we hear that you believe in God. Why? They'd never met someone like me. And of course, that opened the doors. Night after night, I was invited into their homes in Akadim Gorodok in Siberia, elite university outside Novosibirsk. And they plied me with questions and endless and all this kind of thing. And in the end, I met a Christian. Remarkably so. The head of the mass department said, I want you to come to lunch, not to meet me and my wife, but to meet our daughter and her husband. They are evangelical Christians. Well, I was staggered. And the young man who was a technician said, I think I should go to the head of the university and see, can you give a lecture? And he got permission. So here's how that lecture happened. A mathematician explains why I'm a Christian. And we were given a room about this size, with chairs in it, maybe 20 chairs. And I was sitting, you sit in lecture in Russia, and just before I started, I had a translator, of course, I could begin in Russian and that got the audience with me. Somebody said, you better come and look outside. And there was a queue of 500 people Amazing. surrounding the building. Well, what to do? So we walked in and looked for a lecture theater. And this young man just strode ahead and he was stopped by a woman who I learned later was responsible for the communist health of the young people. And uh, she tried to stop him. And I never forget what he said. He said, Madam, you've had it your way for 75 years. These people have come and they want to hear about God and you're not going to stop them. Yes. I mean, that took huge courage. And we walked into the biggest lecture theater we could find. And as I walked in, I looked up and there was a shield over the door. A.E. Maltsev, the very first paper I translated from Russian to English was by that man. And we walked in, the place was absolutely packed. And as I spoke, sitting again, of course, they, they get up and they write their questions and they put them in a pile in front of you. The pile gets, <laughs> you've got to answer them, you see. And at the end, there was huge interest. They wanted literature. I had a few bits of literature and all this. And a young physicist came, I'll never forget him. And he said, he said, you know, we invited the strongest apologist for atheism in Siberia to cut you down tonight. I said, where is he? Well, he said, that's just it. He left. And if that's all atheism can do, that's it finished for me. Now, tomorrow night, I've got a hundred physicists, all of whom speak English, and we want to grill you. And that was the start of it. That was amazing. But what was so lovely, an older man came. I was shattered, of course. The whole thing was shattering because it was historic, as I later discovered. The first lecture in 75 years that had been held. An older man came down to me and he looked at me, friendly eyes. He said, Est-ce que vous parlez français, monsieur? And I said, Yes, I bet. Oh, he said, C'est magnifique ça. I'm the professor of linguistics. And he said, you need a cup of tea. And my staff are getting it ready, so just come with me. And he put his arm around me. It was lovely. And as we went along, he said, just let me tell you, he said, there are far more people than you would believe who want to hear what you were saying tonight. And that opened the door. a door. One other thing, there was a young woman sitting there who was a journalist. 
And she put me in touch. This is a long, complicated and fascinating story, which I hope to tell in some kind of a autobiography. But she put me in touch with her boss, who was the head, uh, uh, the editor-in-chief of the Academy of Sciences newspaper. And the result of that over a period of time was that I was able to put articles on these topics and eventually with David Gooding we wrote a whole series of articles that went into the Academy of Sciences newspaper and went throughout Russia. So it opened a vast door. Those two lectures were absolutely seminal. And many of them, John, I, I gather, um, were surprised or stunned to discover that so many significant scientists throughout history did have a faith in God. Oh, yes. And they weren't aware of that. No, that was, that was one of the funny things. In my, I think it was the second lecture that was on scripture. I think it was. Uh, there were several KGB colonels in the audience, you know, you could tell that sitting in the front, big, heavyweight guys with grim faces. And I got to the point where I was talking about the history of science. I always do and say, you know, some of us may not realize that people like Galileo and Kepler and Newton and Clark Maxwell and Faraday were believers in God. In fact, most of them were Christians. And there was absolute silence and I could see anger. I don't like angry audiences, which is why it's nice talking to you. Um, and I stopped and the chap at the front who seemed to about to be apoplectic, I said to him, why are you angry? And he stood up and said, why am I angry? He said, why is it that we've never heard to this day that these people believed in God? Yes. And I said, are you surprised? It didn't fit in with the no. Soviet explanation. And you know, it's still important today because many people in the West don't realize that, nor uh, in addition, no. do they realize that in the 100 years between 1900 and 2000, over 65% of all Nobel Prize winners believed in God. Yeah. So those things really weighed with the Russians and they were utterly fascinated. Now, um, a professor of mathematics who becomes an apologist and engages uh, with influential atheists around the world. How did that come about? Very early on, I had a deep conviction of the truth of Christianity, not of the helpfulness of Christianity, but of its truth. I was convinced of its truth and I was always passionate about truth. And of course, doing something like mathematics and science and all this kind of thing meant that I was in a position to challenge what is now almost the reigning attitude, sadly, in academia, which is scientism, the idea that science is the only way to truth, which is logical nonsense, of course. But I felt that I wanted to set myself up for the truth of Christianity, but unless it was convincing to people who were starting at the opposite pole, how could I maintain it? So increasingly, I got in contact with more and more serious people, you see. But the big break came relatively recently, in the last 15 years or so. And that was when a friend from North America 
came and listened to me in Wycliffe Hall at the end of uh, what for him was a fruitless search. He, he, he was heart concerned to reach the people in his city of Birmingham, Alabama. But he said, the churches aren't reaching into the society in the way in which I would like to. He was a historian, very interested mm. in the intellectual dimension to things. And he came weary, nearly didn't come to the talk. And in the talk, he said the first 30 seconds convinced him that he'd found an answer. So I was invited to Birmingham, Alabama, of all places, and I went. And he put on a brilliant program of contact. I was most impressed. And then he got in contact with Dawkins. Yes. And managed very cleverly, I think, to get the two of us to debate in Birmingham, Alabama. That, of course, I had no idea. I'd never done a debate like that before. That gave me a world stage. How did you prepare for that debate? Oh, <laughs> that's a nightmare looking back. Because I would no idea, really, and I felt you are going to be up there and people are going to judge the Christian faith, obviously. And... I had many people praying for me, thousands of them actually around the world, which was wonderful. But I felt you must take this chap seriously and what he's saying. So I read all he'd written. I prepared all kinds of scenarios. It was months of work, full time virtually, to do that. And <laughs> as we walked on stage, almost a dream like Dawkins said to me, by the way, you know, I don't debate. Well. He didn't debate people like me. But I said, well, if it's any comfort, I don't either. Yes. All I'm going to try to do is try and put out in the public space a credible alternative to your atheism. And he said, I'll buy that. And we walked out into the glare of the spotlights and the rest's history. And how was it after the debate? Did, you, did the two of you talk? No. No? No, because there were various interviews and he left very little personal communication, which I'm I'm sad about, but not not the easiest of people to communicate with. No, you, uh, one of my favourite quotes, uh, John. I've re- uh, I've got it here. I wanted to get it right. Of yours, this is probably my favourite quote of yours. If religion is a fairy tale of those afraid of the dark, then atheism is a fairy tale of those afraid of the light. Yeah. That was a response to Stephen Hawking. Yes. You see, and uh, it's that kind of Freudian argument, you know, that we meet all the time. And it's it's behind the kind of idea that you're a Christian because you're Irish kind of stuff, rather than investigating the truth. And I feel it's very important to scotch that. There's a brilliant book written by a German psychiatrist called Manfred Lutz. It's called Eine kleine Geschichte des Größten, A Brief History of the Great One. In other words, God. a lovely title. And he's very witty. And in it, he says this. He said, look, if there is no God, then Freud's argument that faith in God is a delusion a fairy tale kind of wish fulfillment is brilliant if there's no God. But if there is a God, the very same argument shows you that atheism is an illusion. The one thing that Freud cannot do is show you whether there's a God or not. Now, that's hugely important for people to see that that argument cuts both ways.
And so when I was asked to respond <laughs> to Stephen Hawking's statement, I gave this quote, and it ended up for the BBC Radio 4 News. Amazing. <laughs> but, but it takes, John, you have to have faith to be an atheist, don't you? Well, you have to have faith in the negative sense. Yes. You see, and that brings me to one of my passions these days is the misunderstanding of faith. Because the Dawkins version and the Hitchens version is faith is believing where there's no evidence. Now, I think atheism is a faith like that. It's blind faith. But Christianity is not a blind faith. And people cannot see this. I, I have so many brilliant colleagues and they think, you're a man of faith, which means you believe where there's no evidence. But what they don't see is two things. One, that the Christian faith is evidence-based, main evidence being the resurrection of Jesus in history and our subjective experience in the present and transformed lives. But they also don't realize that science has faith at its core. And I talk endlessly about this to get people to see it. All scientists are believers, not in God necessarily. Yeah. Einstein once put it brilliantly, he said, I cannot imagine a genuine scientist without that faith. Now he didn't mean faith in God, what he meant was, you've got to believe to do science that science can be done. You've got to believe that, otherwise you wouldn't do it. Now what does that mean? You've got to believe that the universe is, at least in part, intelligible to the human mind. And what does that mean? You've got to believe the universe is mathematically intelligible. But you've got to believe that before you start. Yes. So it's a scientist credo. So all scientists are people of faith. Now, when the word faith is used these days, if you allow me to say this, the confusion is created because it is two meanings that are very distinct. The first is a body of doctrine to be believed, the Christian faith, the Jewish faith, and so on. But then there's my faith and your faith, my subjective faith, and they get mixed up. And we've got to make very clear that the objective body of doctrine to be believed in Christianity, to be believed subjectively, you've got of evidence. I mean, people may come to me and say that England's going to win the, the World Cup. They have faith in that. Well, the next legitimate question is, what evidence have you got for it? And I would like to say, just in concluding this point, which for me is massively important because people don't know what faith is, is to say the Christian faith can easily be seen to be evidence-based commitment. John, in his gospel towards the end, Many other things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. Here's the evidence. Yeah. If Christianity was not an evidence-based faith, we wouldn't have the New Testament because it is evidence, if you see what I mean. Totally, John. John, that's the quickest 30 minutes. It's just gone by. I always love talking to you, John. You're, <laughs> you're very inspiring and very illuminating. Thank you for joining us on Facing the Canon. It's my pleasure. I hope that has inspired you. I hope that's encouraged you. 
We're going to talk to Professor John Lennox in the next program, and we're going to discuss his book, Can Science Explain Everything? Please join us again on Facing the Canon. You've been listening to the J. John Podcast. To find out more about J. John's ministry, visit www.canonjjohn.com and follow him on social media.